begin, what, what do you think of when you hear the word creation? There are a lot of possibilities. Um, in my own head, I think uh, it's often some odd combination of um, what was maybe an American reference, a Discovery Channel uh, documentary, what sort of a science documentary explosion of stars with some deep, majestic voice underneath saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, and I think for many of us in the modern age, that is something that we struggle with, that our understanding of creation draws together this mix of scientific and religious imagery. And they both have deep and, and powerful, uh, uh, deep and powerful aspects uh, for our imagination, and deep and powerful grounding uh, 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 behind them. Uh, but sometimes, and on the surface, there seems to be a great tension between the two, almost perhaps even an unbearable tension for some. And so uh, today, I want to talk about what is, like, where is that tension? but also ways in which that tension might be over-expressed. Uh, over, uh, over there might be less tension than we might have, might have realized or expected. So in that mode, this talk though, uh, in that, that, that mode of bouncing between science and, uh, and, 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 and the faith, is going to bounce back and forth a little bit between the two as well. There will be portions of it that will be more scientifically oriented, talking a bit about um, what we mean by the Big Bang and our understanding of the history of, of the universe uh, from a scientific perspective, but then also looking at what do we understand by the, the, the particularly Genesis chapter 1 and the stories of creation. So there will be a little bit of back and forth, but hopefully not too much, and hopefully uh, in the process, loosening and resolving some of that tension as we go. So, um, so first then, I want to ask about, okay, uh, what what do we think of, how do we understand the, the Big Bang, right? So this is a classic image put forward by NASA that tries to sort of summarize, roughly speaking, the 13.8 billion years of our universe, starting with uh, the, 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 the Big Bang, this moment of absurd expansion. So when we talk about the Big Bang, what, what, are, what, are, what are scientists trying to express? We're talking about this rapid expansion by which space itself expands 10 to the 26 times. So that's one with 26 zeros after it. Um, that's a really big number, bigger than anything you probably like. It's, it's, it's the sort of number that's, that, that it's outside of the scope of our imagination. We need, we need a few layers of analogies even to grasp the scale of this number, the amount of expansion we're talking about. And the speed of this expansion is 10 to the negative 33. So that is one over one with 33 zeros after, and even bigger. So the rate at which we're talking about a so a bang is 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 thoroughly underplays the absurd, chaotic expansion in this just very very first moment of the universe. And then after that, we have this. Uh, uh, we, we, you know, the, 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 that expansion uh, re recollects over time, and you start to get over over time. You get the history of uh, the matter collecting into uh, galaxies and stars uh, that then themselves re-explode. Uh, the stars have a lifetime. Eventually, they go into supernova or supernova, and then collapse again. And this constant interplay of collapsing and expanding this seemingly chaotic mix over the course of 13.8 billion years. 
So there's explosion upon explosion, more recollecting, more exploding, and then, you know, about 4.5 billion years ago, a little less than 10 billion years after the Big Bang, uh, the, in the process of one of those uh, recollecting and developing uh, of a star, that star was our sun, the Earth comes to exist. We have life that develops about 4 billion years ago, the complicated process of evolution, the history of uh, our, our own species, Homo sapiens, which uh, roughly 100,000 years ago. And when we think of this overall scientific picture of the history of the universe, there is a huge amount of distance between us and that band. Both time-wise, 13.8 billion years is just a huge amount of time, and even just experientially, the very idea of what we're talking about in this expansion and collapse, uh, the expansion of the universe, the collapsing and, re and, and exploding of all these stars over time, it's so outside of our usual experience of anything. And so there's a way in which uh, we are, the, the, the Big Bang, the, I, even if we try to associate the idea of the Big Bang with creation, there's a sense in which that's just so distant from us in so many ways, distance conceptually, distant in time, and, and seems very, very far away. When we think about, then, the scriptural narrative that, we're, that we might try to think that, the, uh, um, that we might want to try to reconcile this, on, on the surface it seems like that um, uh, it, it seems like we've already built up this huge distance from us, and yet the, the scriptural narrative uh, is one that seems so um, personal and connected. God himself creating an individual human person and speaking to him and communicating with him directly. And these ideas seem so counterintuitive. One, this, this absurdly long series of, of chaos, chaotic explosions. The other, this very personal connection. But before we jump too quickly into that tension, we have to be careful when we talk about what do we mean by creation in Scripture. Because as I, uh, you know, I uh, we, the, the, the first thing that often comes to mind when we think of creation is Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a form, uh, a shape, and then the seven days of creation, one after another, this orderly uh, construction uh, by, by the Lord. And yet we need to be careful because that's just the first chapter of Genesis. Then you get to Genesis chapter 2. And you get another story of creation. How God formed Adam out of the earth. Man was created in Genesis chapter 1. It's describing that. And then in Genesis chapter 2, we have another account of the story of creation. And if we look at the scriptures more fully, there are accounts of creation in the Psalms and in Isaiah and in Job. Uh, some of these are short and, and, and uh, um, not as detailed, but the idea of creation is not something that is, that is um, only expressed in one place in the Bible, but is expressed throughout the history and the course of the Bible, and expressed in different modes and images. Um, so for instance, so, uh, so Genesis chapter 2 right, is uh, the second story of creation, the, the story of uh, the instructions were, were starting over. This is the, this is the story of how the heavens and earth the, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. But we can also look at, at Proverbs. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundation fountains of the deep. There are echoes of this story of creation with both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 and other stories of creation. But uh, the idea I want to get across here is that 
Sometimes, when we think about creation in the Bible, our, the, the instinct that some Christians have is to go and look at chapter and verse. Okay, what exactly does Genesis chapter 1 say here? What happened first? What happened second? What happened next? And yet, a full picture of creation in the scriptures is much more multiform and complex. So that's something we have to keep in the background. But even if we do decide to, to, to focus on Genesis, just Genesis chapter 1, the stories of seven days of creation, even there we need to be careful. Because on the surface of it, many Christians look at Genesis chapter 1 and think that there's one obvious, straightforward reading of it. Seven days of creation. I know what a day is, a 24-hour period. So this happened first, then this happened, then that happened. And that's obviously what this passage of Scripture is trying to tell us. And yet, then the, the, the worry among at least some Christians that you'll encounter is that attempts to try and talk in a broader sense about creation uh, than just that, uh, uh, the, the, um, and, and, and trying to say that maybe we don't want to talk about Genesis chapter 1 as seven specific 24-hour periods, well, that's a modern thing. That's, that's a contemporary problem that's only happened in the last maybe 100, 150, 200 years. That's Christians reacting to science, afraid of science, and having to, 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 to wrestle with that. And that is simply factually false. If you look at the history of Christian interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1 is actually one of the most varied, there's the most variety of interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 amongst the church fathers. They themselves were very, very concerned with what do these seven days of creation mean? What are they telling us? And you can see the way in which they themselves end up with different opinions about what those seven days of creation should, could mean. Yes, some of the church fathers did read the seven days as seven 24-hour periods. First this, then that, then the next. Others took the idea, well, maybe day is more metaphorical. A day is like a thousand years for the Lord, so maybe this is just a period of time. So first, this happened over the course of some eon or age, then this. So uh, the, uh, first the separation of light from darkness, uh, then the separation of the waters from the land, but others would say, no, actually, this isn't even trying to express uh, a temporal idea. The notion of the ordering of the days is not about what happened first and second and third, but about a priority. What was the most foundational important in the order, in, 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 a, in a philosophical ordering about creation? And so when we look at the, the fathers of the church, the very earliest and most foundational readers of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 1 itself, this, this story of the seven days, leads to a huge range of interpretations. And this, in fact, led to some tension about who is right and how to, uh, how to reflect on it. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to start with, uh, just as an example of this, turning to Augustine. Because Augustine has some really interesting and important things to say. So this is a quote from Augustine's Genesis ad Liseram. So this is his literal interpretation of Genesis. And he is interpreting here Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 2, let there be light. This is his literal interpretation. If the light, spoken of all in the words, let there be light, and light was made, must also be supposed to have a primacy of creation, it is nothing other than intellectual life. So just think about that for a minute. The literal interpretation, Augustine's literal interpretation of Genesis, is that light is intellectual life. I just want to let that sit for a minute, because I think in modern contexts, when we think of a literal reading of Scripture, 
we think of, okay, what is the word that's there? Let me go look at the dictionary and see what it says. So what is light? Let me look up light in the dictionary. Let me look at day. Let me look up day in the dictionary. That is not Augustine's understanding of what the literal interpretation means. What he's trying to understand is, what did the author intend to convey by this scripture? And Augustine, who is convinced that, the, that for, for philosophical reasons, that all of that creation ultimately had to be an instantaneous process where everything was created at once and developed over time, ends up developing this literal reading that he thinks is the, the root meaning of what Genesis is saying. That is actually a quite beautiful reflection. It's, it's rooted in the knowledge of the angels and the angels' awareness of what God is planning to develop over time. Um, I don't want to go into the details of it, but I want to just emphasize this idea that the, the classical understanding of what the literal interpretation of Scripture was, was not a, a word-for-word, go to the dictionary and look the word up. It was, what is the core meaning that the human author and ultimately the heavenly author is trying to convey by this meaning, by, by, this, by this passage? Now, Augustine, so Augustine, this is one of roughly four different interpretations or, or, or extended reflections on Genesis that Augustine uh, produces. He was very concerned with Genesis because it was um, that the idea of creation was actually a point of tension with his previous belief as uh, in Manichaeanism. He came from a belief where the physical world was somehow evil and the spiritual world was good, uh, that the physical things were made by an evil god. Uh, and the spiritual things were made by a good God. So in converting to Catholicism, he realized he had to reject that. And so he took very seriously the understanding of how is it that God, the good God, created the physical world. Uh, so I don't want to go into all the details of uh, the various interpretations that Augustine has, but there's another passage from another work on Genesis, a, a few chapters I think, help to lay the foundation and help us to prepare us for how to think about the complexities we find in, in any scriptures, but Genesis in particular, and our understanding of the physical world. He says here, so this is chapter uh, 18 of On Genesis, in matters that are obscure and far beyond our vision, different interpretations are sometimes possible without prejudice to the faith. In such case, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that it further progress in the search of truth justly undermines this position, we too fall with it. So he's saying that there are, you know, even then he is arguing that the, the, the idea of the creation of the universe is something that is so outside of our normal understanding of the world, this, the, the complicated process by which God brought things to be, uh, uh, that we need to be careful about rushing in too quickly, that our first instinct about what might have been going on, or what the scripture might be saying, we need to be careful about holding onto that so strongly if other, uh, 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 other no ways of, of, of seeking out the truth argue, argue and push us in a different direction, whether it be other readings of scripture or other readings from our understanding of the natural world. He goes on the next chapter to say, it is disgraceful and dangerous thing for an infidel, and I apologize for the older translation of this, but uh, for, for an unbeliever to hear a Christian Presumably giving the meaning of Holy Scripture, talking nonsense on these topics. Topics of the earth, the heavens, the stars, plants, etc. Uh, so he's saying here that, um, that if, if, we if we go to someone who is an expert in biology, or an expert in uh, astronomy, or an expert in uh, any sort of physical uh, the, the, the 
aspect of the physical world and say, this is the one and only way you can read scripture, and it clearly contradicts what they know with some reasonable security about the physical world, that is a, a disgraceful and a dangerous thing. Because it is an impediment that we are putting to an unbeliever to the possibility of their coming to the faith. If we are telling them that, the, that in order to be Christian, you have to believe something that they know to be false, that is an impediment that we are putting to their possibility of coming to know, not uh, coming to know the most important things, which are, as he says at the end, matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, and the kingdom of heaven. So if we, if we stake our ground on questions that, of, of, of uh, uh, notions of creation uh, or notions of certain physical realities that we mistakenly interpret from the, uh, from the scriptures in a way that is contrary to the best understanding of, of, the, of the sciences, we are building impediments to people recognizing more deep and fundamental truths about God's love for them and the possibility of salvation. Now he does also say, there's also the dangerous there that certain weak brethren, so Christians, who faint away when they hear their irreligious critics, so those who disparage the, uh, the scriptures as unlearned, so when they hear non-believers non uh, criticizing the scripture and learnedly and eloquently discoursing on theories of astronomy, uh, with a sigh they esteem these teachers as superior to themselves, and they return with disdain to the books which were written for the good of their souls. So on the, on the flip side, he's saying that as Christians, well, yes, we should love and wonder the created world. We need to be careful about falling into the trap uh, of thinking that um, be, just because someone is uh, so speaks so eloquently and profoundly about the physical order, um, uh, that that discourages us from taking seriously what on the surface of it might seem to be a more simple reading that we're getting from the scriptures. Because that will prevent us as well and pull us away from those things that are most important to us about our own salvation, about God's love for us and, and, uh, and uh, the, the, his hope for us. So what Augustine is laying out here is that we need to be careful in, ex in extending our interpretation of scriptures into, the, the, uh, uh, into topics that we can know about in other ways, particularly in topics about the natural world that we can discover by a direct study of the natural world. He's not saying that these things are necessarily in obvious conflict, but we need to be careful that we don't presume on, on our initial reading of the scriptures to uh, when it turns out that by natural means, we can learn something about the, uh, or an interpretation of the scriptures about natural and scientific facts um, that we can learn about by natural knowledge. Um, if we bring an incorrect reading of Scripture as, uh, as the, our, our justification for a certain idea in, natural, in the natural world um, that contrad contradicts what we can learn by natural means, we're going to be, uh, it's, it's going to be an impediment for non-believers and a danger for our, ourselves. This is, so this is uh, Augustine writing in the, in, in the fourth century. Uh, the fifth century, and, it's, and, and, and this is, you know, a very modern and important idea that I think we've forgotten over time. I think Christians in general have forgotten over time. So, um, uh, yeah. So, so I want to. So, so now, uh, given that 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 initial foundation, uh, I want to step back and just very briefly lay out what exactly is. Um, so, so we, again, we have this apparent tension 
between the scientific view of how the world started and at least an initial reading of what's going on uh, in Genesis chapter 1. And so I want to say very briefly uh, a few things about why it is that we are so convinced that the universe is actually 13.8 billion years old. Where does that number come from? Why is that number reasonable when it seems so unfamiliar and, uh, 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 from, from our normal experience? There's a number of different ways in which we can work out the age of things. Um, sometimes, one of the best tools we have is what's called radiometric dating. I'm not going to go into the details of each of these, I just want to sort of paint a picture. Radiometric dating involves the fact that radioactive elements decay at a very steady rate. And so uh, you can determine how old a radioactive element is, when a radioactive element was created, by the proportion of the radioactive element that has decayed down to some, uh, some lower mass state. And so if you find the right kind of material, you can do this radiometric dating and get reasonably accurate uh, uh, measurements for how old various things are. So this is a picture of the Canyon, Canyon Diablo meteorite, a meteorite planted in Canyon, uh, Canyon Diablo in the United States, and a various form of, of lead, lead, so, so a radioactive isotope of lead uh, dating, dates this to 4.85, or sorry, 4.5 billion years old. So we have found things on the Earth that are 4.5 billion years old. And there are, the, the, that, you know, that number comes with error bars, but it's, it's, it's you know, we're talking things that are at least several billion years old that we can find here on this Earth. Uh, in addition, we can look out at, at the stars and do a similar kind of, oh, uh, we can do a similar kind of dating of stars and look at radioactive elements that we can find in stars. And we see that if we do that kind of dating on stars, we get numbers that go far beyond four and a half billion into the, the, the 10 and 15 billion year range. Another dating tool we have from astronomy, and I'm, I'm a little bit out of my depths, uh, I'm a particle physicist, so stars are way more than two or three particles, they're umpteen million particles, billion particles, so I, uh, uh, my, 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 my knowledge of astronomy is, is sketchy at best. But um, the, 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 one of the best tools that we have for dating uh, 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 stars is the fact that stars follow a very standard pattern in their lifetime. Uh, and if you look at this plot, I realize it might be a little bit hard to read here, but on the left side here, this, uh, um, the axis is luminosity, so the brightness of the star. Uh, and on the right side here is the surface temperature. And so what we say is that the, the temperature of the star, the color that it's, that, that it's, uh, that it's expressing, tells us something about the, um, uh, the, the heat of that star, and also then that, that's connected to the size of the star, and ultimately it's connected to the age of the star. Because the, um, the, stars, that are, uh, the stars that are hotter are up in the top left here in the blue range, and they burn out much quicker. So the stars that start out their life up in the top left corner burn out and drift to the right. Whereas the stars that start out down lower in the red range are cooler and last a lot longer before they burn out. <clears throat> and so you, we can use this when we look at galaxies to get a sense of when you have a huge collection of stars in a galaxy, you can get a rough estimate for the age of the galaxy by how far up this diagonal the, the stars are, uh, are, are still in a nice straight line. Um, if the galaxy is relatively young, you're going to have a nice long straight line the whole way across. As the, as the galaxy gets older, these really hot stars are going to start dying off and drifting to the left. And so the nice straight line is only going to go partway up the, 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 uh, uh, the, the plot. 
So if you look at, uh, say, a young galaxy like M67 here, you're going to have this nice long straight line with a little bit of stuff tailing off here. Um, uh, and so this galaxy is dated to roughly three and a half billion years, or three to five billion years old. Whereas this M4 galaxy, you can barely see any of the nice straight diagonal line. Most of the, the hot stars have drifted off into the top right here. And so this, this uh, galaxy can be dated to roughly 12, 12 billion years old. So now we're getting up into that 12, you know, uh, dozens of billions of years old. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip over this a little bit. So the, the best and most accurate tool that we have comes from this, uh, uh, that are looking at what is called the, the cosmic microwave background. So this is um, a, uh, a tool, uh, this, is, this is the remnant of uh, light from not quite the Big Bang, but not much long after the Big Bang. So these, the, the, this, the, this pattern is a pattern of light that is coming, uh, that has sort of been flying through, 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 the, uh, through the universe for roughly 13.8 billion years before it came to us. And it gives us a certain image of what the universe was like in a very, very, very young state. And from that, we learn all sorts of properties about the structure of the universe. And uh, for the sake of time, uh, uh, it, it tells us something about uh, the rate at which the universe is expanding and the pattern at which the universe must have been expanding. And if we trace that back, we can actually get the most accurate prediction for how old the, the universe is, where uh, based off of the evidence here and a few other collected uh, pieces of evidence, we can get to the, not the, the, that date that the universe is 13.799 plus or minus 0 0.02 billion years old. So that, uh, as, uh, you know, as, as, as sort of odd as this might look, as just sort of a random collection of dots, it's actually the, 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 the cleanest picture we have of the early universe. And through it, we get a certain access to the, uh, the, the pattern in the history of the universe that helps us to date the, the earliest features of the universe to that period of 13.8 billion years. So again, 13.8 billion years followed by collapsing and exploding and this chaotic expansion sounds very, very different from anything that we would expect that, 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 we, that we is, is, is coming to us from the story of seven days. In the story of seven days, we have God deciding, first, I'm going to make this nice, clean division, uh, light from darkness. Then I'm going to make this second clean division uh, of, of the land from the sea. I'm going to create these things, then I'm going to create those things there still seems to be this, this tension. So what, is, what are the principles upon which we can, uh, we, we, can try, we can try to reconcile and find a way in which even that, that, that large and long history that we're getting from science might actually link up with this seemingly simple and seemingly, seemingly quaint picture that comes from Genesis chapter 1. So the first step in doing that is to think, again, a bit more deeply about Genesis chapter 1. And to do that, we're going to jump back now to a bit of theology and philosophy uh, to our good friend, St. Thomas Aquinas. So St. Thomas Aquinas, who is writing well before any of our knowledge about the history of the universe, is simply looking back at what he has received from the church fathers. 
And St. Thomas Aquinas has a huge amount of respect for the Church Fathers and who they are and, what, uh, and, and the, their interpretations of Scripture. And so he is, he is loath to just simply go around and say, this Church Father is right and that Church Father is wrong. He wants to, as best as he can, reconcile everything he finds in the Church Fathers. And it turns out, the place he finds the most tension in the Church Fathers is in Genesis chapter 1. If you actually read through Aquinas' writings, the most complex and interesting things he has to say about scripture interpretation almost always center around the seven days of creation and interpretations of the seven days of creation. So here is, I think, sort of the best summary of his way of trying to reconcile the fact that on the surface, one church father says seven 24-hour periods, another church father says seven thousand-year periods, another church father says instantaneous creation, and that the days are simply ordering a primary. He says that the things that uh, those things that pertain to the faith are distinguished in two ways. For certain things are of themselves the substance of the faith, such as that God is three and one. And this kind of thing in which no one is permitted to opine otherwise. So there are things that come out of the scriptures which every interpretation of scripture to be a good interpretation of scripture has to get right. Uh, and so these are the foundational core aspects of the scriptures that we need to be, that if, 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 we, start, if we start drifting from them, we're in very dangerous territory. But other things are only accidentally of the substance of the faith, insofar, namely, as they are handed on in scripture, such as many historical uh, figures. Those are sorts of things about which, you know, we don't have, uh, uh, we don't have, uh, we're not, it's not, it's not necessary for us to get all of those details exactly right to still have the truth of the faith. Um, and I think, he's, and he's particularly leaning in here now on the idea of creation, that the, the historical details of what happened exactly in what order are things that we need to be, we should try to interpret and try to think about carefully, but it's, it's not, contra it's, it's not, a, it's not contrary to the faith if the church fathers end up holding diverse opinions on these things and coming up with different ways of explaining what's going on in the scriptures. So he continues, so thus, concerning the beginning of the world, there is something that pertains to the substance of the faith, namely, that the created world had a beginning. And all the fathers agree on this. So all the church fathers agree that in the idea of creation from nothing, that God created. Um, but how it began and in what order it was made to pertain, pertain to the faith only accidentally, insofar as these opinions are handed on in Scripture. Scripture does say things about uh, the, you know, the first day, the second day, the third day. So we need to think about that, what that might mean, whether it's literal or more broad. But insofar as these opinions are handed, so, so, the, so the truth of the fathers, that's why you could, you, that's why he says it's okay that we find this diverse opinion among the fathers, handing on these diverse explanations. So the last bit of what I want to do today is ask, okay, so what exactly are these core aspects? When we think of the idea of creation, what exactly is it that pertains to the substance of the faith? that we can find uniformly across all the church fathers. And how might those things, how might those things look in the context of contemporary science?
So, uh, so, the, the, I, so I've sort of distilled these down to roughly four specific theological truths coming out of the Genesis chapter 1 narrative of creation. The first is the one that Aquinas mentioned, that there was a beginning, in the beginning. So there was a beginning to creation. It happened at some moment, um, and uh, that, that, there is, that the universe was not around for all eternity. Second, that there is order in the created world. The world was without form and shape, then God said. That God's activity brings order and structure and, and, and not just randomness and chaos, but it brings, it brings a reasonableness and a goodness to the created world. Or a, 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 an order to the created world. In addition, that order is not just any order, but a good order. There is goodness in the created world. God saw that it was good. And finally, that humanity is in some sense the pinnacle of creation. Let us make man, uh, let us make human beings in our image after our likeness. He says that of nothing else in creation. There's something special about human beings. But even this list on the surface of it, these four things, there was a beginning, the order of the created world, the goodness of the created world, humanity is the pinnacle of creation. Many people would argue that even these things seem to con are, are contrary to our scientific understanding of the universe. So I want to spend this last bit sort of walking through and making an argument that actually, when properly understood, our best understanding of science actually supports these four key ideas. So first, the idea that there was a beginning. Now, in one sense, this is perhaps the easiest. Um, not because this picture of the Big Bang actually proves that the universe had a beginning. In fact, it doesn't actually. Um, there are scientific arguments that there might have been something before the Big Bang, um, that perhaps what we're seeing in our universe is part of a larger structure, and so um, it's a, yeah. So there are different theories of what could have happened before the Big Bang, that maybe our expansion of the universe is one of this sort of expanding and collapsing series, or that our universe is one little branch in this bubbles of multiverses. But the, the, but the, without, without, uh, so the, 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 what I want to say here is that, um, while we don't have a proof that the, that the Big Bang was the beginning of the universe, there are very strong and reasonable arguments made by scientists, not on any theological grounds, that the universe, even if something, some complex series of things happened before the Big Bang, there had to have been a beginning. Now, there are scientists who argue the other direction as well. But the thing is, the idea of the beginning is not some weird counter-scientific notion, as it was in the 19th century, where people presumed that the universe had to be static, that it had always been the way it was, and the idea of creation seemed sort of anti-scientific. Uh, whereas we have now at least an image coming out of science of what, what the beginning might have looked like. And that is a good and a great thing. So we don't have a proof of the beginning, but the idea of the beginning beginning is scientific, scientifically reasonable. And we can use science to support the possibility of of, of, of a history to the universe. So, moving on. The idea that there is order in the created world. Now, some teams seem to think that quantum mechanics tells us that everything is random. But randomness and order are not mutually opposed to one another. You know, I painted this rough picture where you have this initial big bang coming out of what is sometimes referred to as this quantum soup, this uh, super hot, super dense collection of particles, and 
It simply is the random distribution of those particles that ends up determining what, uh, uh, what galaxies end up where, what planets end up where, that the universe seems, on some accounts, to be fundamentally random, fundamentally quantum mechanical, fundamentally chaotic. So any aspect of order, some would argue, seems to be an illusion. But uh, I want to make, uh, so, and, and in fact, this is the very picture that I, that we started, that I started with in terms of this, uh, this, this first sign that we have, uh, or the first, or the, the, the oldest uh, sign that we have from the from early days of the universe, is actually, in some sense, a reflection of the, the variation in colors there is a reflection of the quantum mechanical fluctuations uh, that were going on in that earliest in those earliest days. But I want to uh, push back against this idea of randomness with a slightly silly analogy. So imagine you take your junk drawer and dump it into a box, like I did here, uh, and you shake up that junk drawer uh, and you shake up that box. Right? What's going to happen? You're going to get a random collection of stuff bouncing around. Okay. Well, if you stop, if you, if you slow it down and let it stop, what happens? You get a random collection of junk sitting still. Okay, so you have randomness, you start with randomness, you get randomness, fine. Well, what about if you, instead of, uh, uh, don't play the game. There we go. Uh, instead, of, instead of a junk box, you get a bunch of ping pong balls. You start shaking those, what happens then? Well, you get random chaos. You get this random bouncing around of ping pong balls. So okay, we're starting with randomness, but if we slow down, we let them settle. What do we end up getting? You end up getting a nice ordered pattern. You see these little hexa hexagonal structures built in, where you get this orderly arrangement of, of the ping pong balls, particularly close in. If you had even more ping pong balls, that, that layer would continue in a three-dimensional structure. Right? This is uh, a, standard, uh, a standard aspect that we find in nature called hexagonal packing. When you take spheres and you try to put them into a tiny space, the best and most natural thing you're going to find are a bunch of hexagonal structures. So here you'll see these you know, hexagons, hexagons of oranges, you can see hexagons of oranges and apples, and it ends up being this sort of pyramidal structure in three dimensions. And you find this all over the place in nature. Like, so this is honeycombs, right? So what is this? This is packing a bunch of circles as close as possible. You end up getting this hexagonal pattern. These are, this is sneezeweed, I think it is sneezeweed, that's just an awesome name. Um, so it's a, this flower, but the, 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 the bulbs on this flower, when they pack together, you can, you know, if you, if you look closely, you can again see that six-sided hexagonal structure. Uh, and this is a, a, a zoom-in closer of the eye of a fly. And again, you see these, these little circular uh, structures that end up in this hexagonal packing pattern, right? Um, so, but what's going on here is important. Like, if we, if we look back to, uh, uh, so in a certain sense, it seems like we started with randomness, and we got order. Where did the order come from? Well, the thing is, we did have randomness, but we didn't have complete randomness because we had a bunch of spheres. And in a certain sense, in a mathematical sense, there's a way in which we actually lost some order here. So the sphere is a very symmetrical thing. You take a sphere, you can rotate it in any direction, any amount you want, and it'll, and it'll look exactly the same. And if you, but if you collect a bunch of spheres together, you don't get that perfect infinite symmetry in any direction. You get this sort of six-sided symmetry. You get hexagonal symmetry, which is symmetric, but in a certain sense, less symmetric than the spheres you start with. So there's a way in which there's, there's an order that comes out of this randomness, but that order is rooted in a deeper order that we might not have noticed to begin with. 
And this, these are all visible geometric patterns of order, but this actually dives into uh, theoretical particle physics as well. So these, these pictures here are not meant to re represent physical symmetries, but they represent mathematical symmetries in the way that particles interact with one another. Or actually, well, these are collection of particles, mesons and baryons, so collections of quarks. And you see that under, with the right kind of axes, you can arrange these, and you get these nice little hexagonal patterns. It's, it's reminiscent of, but not exactly the same as the, uh, the, the hexagonal patterns we're talking before. But there's an interesting uh, sort of moment in the history of uh, uh, particle physics where these are the particles that had been discovered uh, in the mid 20th century, and you have you know, the, uh, the mesons make this very nice hexagon, the baryons make this very nice hexagon, and the, our one set of baryons make this nice hexagon over here, but these baryons over here make this weird kind of like trapezoidal figure. And that's great and all, like trapezoids are okay, but like, wouldn't it be great if there were a particle right there, made in a nice triangle? And that's what physicists thought. It'd be really great if there were a particle that, that, that had properties that would make it be, exist, you know, in this structure, in that place. So they looked for one. They could figure out the properties of the particle based off where it should be, and they found it. They found the, 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 partner, or the particle to sort of fill out that symmetry in order. That we find the symmetries in nature uh, at various levels and structures. And so this kind of symmetry, again, is not a physical symmetry in the sense of a geometrical symmetry. Uh, it's not uh, in three-dimensional space. But the symmetries between these particles influence and determine the symmetries between how protons and neutrons interact with and then those related to how electrons interact determine the symmetries for the different kinds of atoms that can possibly be made. And those kinds of symmetries end up determining what our periodic table is, what sorts of chemical or uh, what sorts of chemical structure are possible, and from the chemical structure, the kinds of biological and physical structure are possible. So the physical visual symmetries we have are built on deeper symmetries in a, uh, that are mathematical but not geometric. And so when we apply randomness to certain situations, order pops out of it, not because there's some magical out-of-nothingness of this particular order, but that, that, that a deeper order in the universe actually, uh, 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 when, when, when allowed to, to sort of shuffle itself out randomly, uh, ends up creating new order in more complex and higher order. So that randomness actually brings more order into the world uh, than, than it would have otherwise. There's a way in which it is through randomness that the order comes. So that the fundamental randomness of quantum mechanics, the fundamental seeming chaos of these explosions and recombinations of the, of the stars and galaxies, are actually the working out of the filling out of these higher and higher levels of orders. The explosions of certain stars allow what were necessary for the development of higher, uh, of, of higher atoms that were necessary for higher biological structures that were necessary for life. And so there's a certain sense in which even that chaos, that, that, that almost violence, leads to higher and greater things. Okay, so two more. So the, uh, the last year, the, the idea there's goodness in creation. Um, now, in a sense, right, this, again, this is a commonly... You'll hear scientists at times talk about the universe as if, or well, not even as if, literally, saying that the universe is a cold, dark, uncaring place. Because most of the universe is empty vacuum. Uh, that our, our little nice, warm, relatively warm bubble here on Earth is very, very weird and very strange. And that the universe is 
much, much larger and much, much more, um, uh, uh, and, 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 and most of the universe uh, is emptiness and void. And uh, that um, there is uh, a goodness, uh, so, so that, that it seems like there's a certain sense in which, um, on the surface of it, from one perspective, you might claim that there's a lack of goodness in the universe. There's this emptiness, there is this constant churning of death and destruction. It seems like there are a lot of things that on the surface seem evil in the universe. But the thing is, it's, it's hard to measure goodness from a scientific perspective. It's not like a unit of goodness like herbs for energy or something like that. There's a sense in which, yes, there is a lot of death and destruction in the 13.8 billion year history of the universe. Lots of stars had to go into supernova. Lots of uh, species of animals died to make room for other species of animals. But in that, but, um, but that, uh, but in that process, it allowed well, the, the, the development of higher orders that we were just talking about. That because there is the length of time, because there is that, the, the, the space that's open to it, and because there is the possibility of giving, giving the universe a chance to fill out the, the, the beauty and structure that's available to it, that's possible to it, that more and more new things come to, come to exist over time as other things fall away and are destroyed. That yes, it's bad for a particular star to go into supernova because it doesn't exist anymore, but it opens up the possibility of new kinds of stars, new kinds of chemistry, new kinds of structures, and eventually life. That we can only exist if there had been a certain sequence of death and decay of stars and of chemical structures and of biological structures. So that under the right circumstances, um, so, yeah, so uh, for the sake of time, I'm gonna jump through this quickly, skip over fun facts about supernovas. Um, but the, the process of destruction allows for new and, and greater order to come about. So finally, this last one, the idea that humanity is the pinnacle of creation. And this is one that, that scientists have argued for a long time, that science is constantly pushing us away from the idea that humanity is important. And, and, and oftentimes, they start with this, which is a, a medieval picture of, of the universe. Um, so you have the, 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 the geocentric structure with the Earth at the center, uh, the, the heavenly spheres around it. Um, and they say, look, in the old picture of the things, man was exactly in the middle of the universe. But now, right, well, the Earth is, you know, not even in the middle of our solar system. This is in, this is in no way scale. Uh, so, so the distance between each of these planets uh, is, you know, uh, um, yeah, it's, it gets larger and larger as you go. So the Earth is like tucked in near the sun, but uh, not even the largest planet, the most interesting looking planet to a certain extent. And that solar system is just in this little spot in the Milky Way amongst all these other billions of stars. Um, and that galaxy is just one of an absurd quantity of galaxies. So what's so important about Earth when in the history and structure of the universe it seems so tiny and insignificant? We used to be in the middle, and now we're here who knows where. Well, look back at this picture at the center here. It's a little hard to see. Um, What's actually at the center, uh, what's the, the most central thing in at least certain medieval pictures of the universe, is hell. Um, heaven is an imperium heaven on the outskirts. Being at the center was not actually a good thing. Uh, being at the center was where Earth was, so you, you know, the Earth was the center of the universe, but in a certain sense, there wasn't, that, that wasn't 
uh, a, a, a point of pride per se. It was a, it was that it was actually the reason for and cause of our corruptibility and our fallenness, uh, our corruptibility, the fact that we were corruptible creatures. So that being in the middle is not what's so important about it. What's important for humanity as humanity is our ability to transcend that corruptibility and open ourselves up to God's, uh, open us up to higher things, to look at this universe, to be able to understand and predict what this universe might look like, and to try and develop a greater, uh, greater understanding. So, um, in one sense, why can we say that humanity, like, why, why is uh, science helpful for making the argument that humanity is a pinnacle of creation? Because it's only human beings that have been able to actually make the kind of reflections that I'm trying to argue for. It's only human beings that have been able to look out at the universe and realize the universe is 13.8 billion years old. That there is this amazing beauty and chaos and this interplay between uh, factors and powers that have allowed for the possibility of our existence. That it is only human beings who are able to recognize the depth and variety and, and amazingness of the fullness of creation uh, uh, in a way that, that you know, the stars that have, you know, gone and that, that existed for much longer than we did and have gone into supernova and then re recollected as other stars, they're, they're beautiful in their own right, but they have no way to understand what they're a part of. They have no way to understand the structure and unity of the whole. It has, take, it has taken this weird particular kind of animal that has this weird particular capacity to look out at the world and to study it in detailed and varied ways to be able to recognize that, that we have this particular place here. And that we can, and we can, in a certain sense, transcend our limited, tiny little bubble on Earth and see where we are in this broader and uh, more amazing picture of the universe because we were created the way that we are, because we are human beings. So, with that, uh, I, uh, uh, with that last thought, then I'll stop. Um, and I thank you for your time, and I'd be happy to take questions about what we're going to talk about. Thank you so much, Father Thomas, for that deep reconciliation for me or the relationship between creationism and Big Bang. May we applaud him once more.
to be had about the So I guess you um, let's just say. Yeah, so the, the argument that the Big Bang is a very, very probable uh, uh, conclusion of science. We're very, very, very confident that something like the Big Bang happened. There are lots of things about the Big Bang that we don't understand. I mean, Big Bang, like, the reason it's interesting is because actually like, physics breaks down the Big Bang. Um, Basically, you're trying to cram every, everything that exists into an infinitely small space. So take, you know, every, like, everything divided by zero. That's a bad idea. Divided by zero, bad idea. So physics, on the surface of it, seems to break down. Now, there are very interesting and creative ideas for what might have happened before that for, for smoothing out that what's called singularity that happened to the Big Bang. Now, but I do want to, I just want to make a point. There's some people who would say that there are, like, nothing that modern science gives us is, is a fact. All that we have is probable knowledge. And I, I don't think that's true. Um, now, this is a, there's a whole other Thomistic argument we had for why something like a kind of classical Aristotelian specific understanding of demonstration is possible in the contemporary context. So I would, I would argue, for, for instance, the fact that we know for a fact that electrons exist. There are things, structures in nature that have a mass in charge, that is the mass in charge of an electron, uh, and they're quantized in this particular way. Now, there are things about the electron that we don't know. There are weird, like, it could be that it's part of, it, that it's made up of smaller things we haven't found yet. But there are, I would argue, we can make a demonstration to say that we know that for certain. Um, we know for certain that like, the moon is round and the earth is round. So sometimes you hear people saying things about science and they're like, oh, science, everything scientists say can be turned over to that's not the case. The Big Bang, though, is I don't, I don't think we will ever have that kind of knowledge of the Big Bang. And that's because it's not the sort of thing that we can actually put into a lab. This is all us looking back at history and extrapolating backwards. So we have really great tools for doing that, that limit what seems reasonable to come out of it, but we can't recreate it. And if we could, it'd be really, really bad idea. Uh, so, so, so it's not the sort of thing that we can test in the way to get to what I would say is like, is, is fact by certainty about it. But we do have really good uh, understanding that something like the Big Bang, this very, very tightly packed uh, uh, existence that expanded absurdly quickly uh, in, 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 at a certain scale. Um, so uh, a, lot of, a lot of things about our understanding of nature would have to be very, very different if that were the case. Now, there are scientists who argue that there are, that, that, you know, that, that that the Big Bang is, is, it is you know, either different from the way you, the, the, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's traditionally or normally presented. I, I'm not aware of anybody who seriously argues there was no Big Bang. Uh, uh, but there, there are definitely arguments about whether there could have been things before the Big Bang. And that's an interesting, open scientific question. It also has an issue, though, I don't know if that's like, so the question of is what happened before, the, or did something happen before the Big Bang? I think that's also a question we'll never be able to answer, um, not from a scientific perspective, because we can't look beyond this Big Bang. The nature of the physics of the Big Bang, as best as we understand, is that it, it becomes a wall to whatever, whatever might have happened before. So there's no observational tool that we can have, as far as I understand, and I've never heard a good one proposed, that would tell us exactly what, ha like what happened before the Big Bang. So there are very reasonable and, and, and good scientific arguments for why, for instance, you might have had this expanding and collapsing structure, or that our universe is one little bubble of a larger structure. And there are 
they're built on scientific ideas, and they're scientifically motivated. Like, they, they give you a really nice, clean picture, um, but we don't have observational evidence of it, and I don't think we ever will. So I think there's, there's an aspect of the Big Bang that's always going to be unknown, which, being a Thomist is awesome because that means it requires to still right, but that we don't actually know. Like, that there's no, there's no natural, there's no natural argument, whether philosophical or scientific, that would tell us whether the universe actually had a beginning or not. Uh, this is it's sort of a, a subtle point that Aquinas is. Uh, so he believed the universe had a beginning theologically, but he didn't think he could prove it philosophically. Um, and I would argue that's still true. Then. To your second question about evolution, I, just briefly to say. Um, there's a way in which, I mean, so that, 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 that opens up a whole other collection of questions. Um, and, you know, some of them rooted in Genesis chapter 1, some rooted in Genesis chapter 2, uh, particularly when you start to think about human origins um, and questions around original sin and things like that. Um, so I don't want to go into a whole lot of details there. But I think maybe I'll just give, like, one interesting comparison and contrast between the things I've been focusing on in terms of the astronomy, like the, the, the physical history of the universe versus the biological history of the universe. And then I'll point you in a direction of more things to look at if you're interested in diving more into evolution. So there's a, um, there's a classic, this, this goes back to that idea of order and randomness. Um, so there's a, a classic idea that was developed by a biologist named Stephen Jay Gould, and it's sort of, you know, it's a thought experiment where he argues that if you could run the tape of, of history back, the tape of life backwards, and so, sorry for those of you, a tape is a sort of thing you can push for a line down and uh, So if you, you have a videotape, you know, you, you rewind backwards and play it forwards again. What he was saying is you could, um, if you were on the tape of life and ran it forwards, to, you know, it, wherever you started from, you would end up with, or if you went far enough back, you would end up with a completely different taxonomy of animals and plants. And he does really interesting things with this about where some of these choke points might have been, what what life might have looked like if something very very minor happened at this point or that one. And so I'm not a biologist. I'm not best to judge exactly. You know, because I've heard biologists sort of push back a little bit against that particular. But I would say, if you did the same sort of thought experiment on the universe as a whole, and ran the great universe all the way back to the Big Bang, and push play again. So now. Uh, what, are, what are we expecting to see? So certain things about our universe, if we, if we ran it forwards again, would be random and chaotic and very different. So the Milky Way galaxy, in, in the particular structure, in the particular place it is, wouldn't be. Like the particular arrangement of stars and galaxies and where things ended up would be very, very different. But basically, everything, but, 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 the, but the, the periodic table would be exactly the same. So while the particular, like the constellations in the sky would be completely different, but the periodic table would end up being the exact same, the exact same elements. And you would even have almost, you know, the beginnings of chemistry would be all, would definitely be exactly the same. Um, so that, to a certain level, that randomness uh, uh, only shows up in, in certain aspects of reality, not all of them. That sort of, that, you know, the, 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 there's a certain order that is because of the the age and distribution of the universe is is definitely going to show up somewhere. So if we ran the, if we ran the tape back to Big Bang, we would find all of the naturally occurring elements in the periodic table would show up somewhere in the universe in a way that we couldn't be guaranteed that you know 
dogs and cats and rabbits would show up uh, in, uh, in, uh, uh, in the universe. If, you, if you're interested in the question of evolution, I, I, I would suggest going to there's a, a whole um, series of projects that's been, uh, that I've been a part of called Thomistic Evolution. So this is an effort to use um, Thomistically grounded uh, philosophy, uh, as well as some of the things I've been talking about, scripture interpretation, to, um, to, to, to lay a groundwork for trying to talk about how to reconcile um, contemporary understandings of biological evolution with a broadly Catholic and specifically Thomistic way of thinking about natural philosophy uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and the scriptures. Um, and so the, the, the first part of that project was uh, a series of almost like bulletin inserts basically that were aimed at sort of, you know, college educated, if you have uh, Catholics in pews, um, that was plugged into a book. There's a second version of the project that's aiming at some higher academic things, but also aiming at producing materials for high school students on these sorts of topics. So there are a lot of interesting and difficult questions from a Thomistic perspective about evolution and how evolution will work within St. Thomas's understanding of uh, nature and metaphysics. Um, but I think uh, there is a there's a lot of risk for the mill and a lot of a lot of tools there to make really interesting and helpful uh, uh, connections between uh, uh, a kind of uh, a, a well-grounded mystic philosophy and contemporary evolution. So I'll just leave it that. Thank you very much. Thank you very very much for the presentation today. Sure. It was incredibly interesting. I have a question concerning our scientific knowledge, given the complete uh, difference in scales uh, concerning the scale of what there's micro, like in quantum yeah. physics and the astronomic scale. Um, could it be that uh, given such differences in scales, um, ordinarily we're not able to orient ourselves in such extremes, mm -hmm. so perhaps these differences in scales um, goes to show how we are still within comfortably a macro scale and perhaps macro scales inform us as to how we situate ourselves in the world? No, that's, that's not very good. Um, I mean, so, so the short answer I would say yes. <laughs> um, so I think it is the case that, right, um, but it, 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 there's a, there's a, the, the issue of a, of a feedback, like, it just simply is the case that it's very, very hard for us to imagine what's going on in quantum mechanics, or to imagine what's going on in general relativity at galactic scales. It just turns out four-dimensional structure is just not the sort of thing that we're used to imagining. So because we are creatures that exist in this roughly, you know, two-meter tall, you know, uh, 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 I, don't, I don't know kilograms, a uh, couple hundred pounds uh, 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 physical structure with certain biological features, like, it turns out that there are, like, what we are, whether, I mean, and I would say this in two ways, whether you want to talk about this from a kind of scientific evolution side or from a Thomistic uh, natural philosophy side, I think, which, and I think they both have something to say here, it's just natural for us to deal with certain parts of reality better than others. The stuff that we can sense is stuff that is the most accessible to us. So, like, right now, there are, like, at this very moment, there are tiny little, like, like tiny, tiny particles flowing through every single one of our hands and every single one of our bodies. But they're, they, 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 they're called neutrinos, they're coming mostly from the sun, but also other astronomical things. But 
they're, it is their nature that they just don't interact with the stuff we're made of very easily. So they mostly just pass straight through us to keep on going. Every once in a while they might, they might, you know, they might bump into something. It has a very minor and almost negligible effect. Um, so we're just not adapted to see those sorts of things. Um, but then, so, 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 I, so I say that yes, there's, so there's a certain sense in which it makes sense then to sort of start from this perspective. So what's important about what you're saying, I think, is, is that there's a temptation sometimes among, particularly people who find the sciences compelling, um, and, and philosophers who sort of think about these things, to fall a little bit into the trap, kind of like what Augustine was talking about, where you read about like the amazing stuff that we've learned about quantum mechanics, and it's awesome. Like, but, but then you start, but then you start trying to, you talk about it in a way that, as if that is more accessible to us than the stuff we're used to, and you start saying things like, "This table uh, is just a cloud of of, of pro, uh, protons and electrons. It's it's mostly vacuum." There's a sense in which that's true, but it's not more true than the fact that, like, I'm king this table right now. I can tell you why, like, knowing that the, that, that, that that table is made of protons and electrons and mostly vacuum, why it is that I can do the table in the way I can, and my hand doesn't pass through. Um, and there's really interesting quantum mechanical reasons for that. Um, but we only know about the fact that, that, that this table is made up of, of protons and, and neutrons and electrons. <coughs> Mostly vacuum again. That's that's actually not quite right. Um, because we've used our senses and really sensitive tools that are adapted to our senses to get to that knowledge. So what I would say is yes, there's a sense in which we are. Uh, um, it's easier for us to imagine and access the things that are sort of roughly our size and roughly you know, our our scale. Um, and and so we should we uh, we shouldn't be surprised. It's, like, it, 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 was, it was very shocking in the early 20th century when it turns out that nature wasn't exactly the same all the way down. Where classical physics thought that the atoms and things made that, 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 that things were made of basically worked like billiard balls, just really, really tiny billiard balls. It was very, very surprising to us when we realized that they weren't nothing like billiard balls. But in a certain sense, maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised because, because they're just, it is such a vastly different scale than anything we're used to. Or the idea that, that Gravity works, and, and, and the interaction of planets works in a way that's very, very different than me throwing a ball back and forth or playing soccer with somebody. It's like maybe we shouldn't have been so surprised that those things are so different. On the flip side, though, we don't understand those weird and distant scales better than the scales that are familiar to us. It's only through the scales that are familiar to us that we have access to those things and are able to recognize why they are so different and fascinating. I hope that kind of addressed your question. I sincerely appreciate the um, dedication you have put into this work because uh, in life, some people are faced with responsibilities of accepting things the way they are, and some people are inspired to put in a little, a little bit more effort to um, widen the scale. So, talking about creation and um, the Big Bang Theory, in my own understanding, I feel it is uh, what you are trying to inform us about is uh, the, to clear the misconception that perhaps our belief in the creation of God as Catholics, uh, 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 our belief in the creation of life through God as Catholics, 
should be contradicted by science. Just to enable us to understand that we have to hold faith to our um, existing belief. And just feel comfortable with it. Because the more we try to go deeper, you know, in Latin it says, Amo habendi habendo crescit. The love of having increases by having. You just want to keep trying and, you know, expanding the knowledge. And But that is the dynamism of human nature. We are inquisitive by nature. And the more you pay attention to things, you know, the more you, you grow in that knowledge. I was having a discussion with a friend who asked me um, my understanding about God. You know, so um, perhaps he was expecting a grand uh, definition of what I think about God. Permit me to share. I told him that I think that describing God in one word or sentence is simply a reduction of the almightiness of God. In, in a nutshell, I believe God is a spirit being whose understanding overwhelms my thoughts and farthest imagination, yet whose presence I consciously feel in my life through giving attention, deep attention to the occurrences and things around me. Above all, God is indescribable. I tell him I see God as the unknown known. Thank you. No, thank you. Um, I guess, I mean, in, in, in light of what you were saying about uh, the, so, so what, what, if, what is it maybe in terms of like the goal of what I'm trying to present here? And I, th I think you're right. There's a certain sense in which I am trying to clear away certain misconceptions and relieve certain tensions, right? Um, that that had built up sort of historically um, over time, and and and, in, 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 and that I've you know, um, run into with in conversation with various various people. So. Um, I think there's a sense in which um, I think you're right. So, uh, yeah. So the, the, the two issues, two thoughts that come to mind. Um, I'm not sort of trying to make an argument that you need to have a deep understanding of astronomy and particle physics to have a good faith. That's definitely not the case, right? Um, that that not everyone needs to be a scientist. Not everyone is called to study the natural world in. in same way. Um, that, I mean, what, what we're called to do is, is to become saints, to, to recognize God as, as, as much of the way that you described him, as one who, who loves us, uh, who sent his son to die for us, uh, and is, is calling us to uh, uh, a happiness beyond anything we could ever imagine. Uh, but he has also given the possibility of looking out at the world in all sorts of different ways. For some people, that is a deep study of theology, a deep study of philosophy or history. For some people, that is a deep study of sciences. Um, and kind of inspired by John Paul II, who adorned this room, that ultimately, whatever deep study we might decide to do cannot contradict the faith that has been revealed by God. And so not everyone is, is called or required to work out every single little detail of every possible conflict. And it is in fact, I think, I mean, at times you, you see people stress over that, where they feel like they need to, they need to seek out and, and solve, in, they themselves need to solve every possible conflict. And it's, that in itself is an impossible task for any one person. But as, uh, as, as uh, a community of faith, uh, as in sort of the, 
Catholic uh, and Christian world as a whole, that there is a certain responsibility to provide tools to help those who find, uh, who are really interested in those details and find those tensions and try to give them tools to help relieve those tensions. And so it's been a great kind of honor and gift in my own life to sort of be a part of that conversation um, and work towards trying to figure out, okay, well, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it is, it is, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's a never-ending process in a certain sense, but that, um, uh, you know, you don't, you don't need to have the, the not, you should, not everyone needs to have the, the technical understanding, but it's, I think it's helpful to be able to present reasonable accounts for how these, how, how to reconcile are the best gifts that come to us by natural means and the amazing and best gift that comes to us by supernatural means. Uh, the gifts of, of reason, the gifts of faith. Um, and that, uh, that needs to be adapted at various levels as well. That there's a way to give that account to, to children, there's a way to give that account to high schoolers and college students, there's a way to give that to professors of astronomy, professors of biology. And it's gonna look, it's, it's gonna be the same story but look different for different levels of complexity. Um, and so it's, it's a, uh, it, it, but it is, it, it is, in a certain sense, it's working out and working against those temptations that Augustine pointed out in those three chapters on about Genesis that are constantly kind of tripping us up from one side or the other. The temptation of presenting too simple a portrayal of the faith in a way that then becomes an impediment to those who don't believe, or uh, a way in which that, that too simple pro, uh, 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 presentation of faith ends up leading to uh, a, a, a dissatisfaction with, uh, with the truths of the faith because it's, they seem simple and, and outdated in comparison to the wonderful things that we've learned from, from modern science or other things. So the more that we can do to present at various levels this harmony between the two, the more we can help those who are outside of the faith to, to find the beautiful harmony that is possible in the, uh, 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 in the Catholic tradition and uh, to help ourselves and our brothers and sisters to strengthen their own faith and confidence uh, that there is, it's, that it's worth for some of them to spend their lives you know, studying physics and biology and chemistry and that they can actually come to know God better through that in a certain way, in their own personal way. So, um, I think I might leave it at that. <laughs>
that would not fall prey to the God of the Gaps argument in favor of this fine tuning. Well, um, so let me let, let, so let me let me say uh, one or two things about fine tuning. Um, so fine, fine tuning again, as you described, it, maybe just to be a bit maybe a bit clear for those who aren't familiar with the idea. There are there are certain features of the universe, certain properties of the universe, uh, or, or, or of, of how physical things interact, that if they were just the tiniest bit off, um, all sorts of things would be drastically different. So if the if the, 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 the strength of the strong force, like how it is that um, quarks bind together to protons and neutrons, was it, I, I, I don't know what I'm talking about head, but it's, it's something like if it's a percent different than where it is now, you basically wouldn't get above maybe the first like 10 or so atoms in the periodic table, so it would never happen. And so you would never get to carbon and oxygen and certain complex chemistry, uh, chemical necessary for chemistry and necessary for life. So you wouldn't get one. If you change the, 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 the strength of the electromagnetic force, the same sort of thing. So there's all sorts of, and there's, you know, people have pointed out a dozen or so of these features. And they are, they're, they're very striking and very interesting. But I do have to say, like, so my, if I put my physicist hat on, I find them compelling. Like, they definitely are, these are true features of reality. But the physicist in me really, really wants there to be a, a good scientific reason for why those things are the way they are. And this may, in a certain sense, be just the way I was trained to do it. Because, so this, it's funny because um, it, in my, my own training in, in particle physics, this actually became a big deal in, when I was in graduate school because I was in graduate school right before they turned off the large hat. So large hadron collider is the biggest machine ever built by human beings, and so we're smashing protons together and trying to figure out what are the fundamental forces that bind particles together. Um, and the machine is, you know, it's a huge machine with huge effort, and the, just the nature of it, you kind of had to, you had to have a pretty good idea of what you were looking for in order to build it in the right way to find it correctly. Um, if you weren't careful, you could design the machine so it would miss stuff. It might miss certain kinds of particles or ranges of particles. So there were a couple really well-motivated theories where we thought we were going to find. The most common of which was called the, 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 the MSSM, the, the, the massive disagreement of the, sorry, no, the, the, the minimal supersymmetric uh, standard model. So it's like this extension of what we knew, like, uh, you know, attitude particles in various masses. And in so many ways, the machine was designed to look for that kind of thing and a few other common particles. Um, and right before they were going to turn it on, I was like, well, what if we're just wrong about our intuitions, about what we think is, what, 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 what the world might be? What if, what if things, because the, um, the motivation for why these theories were about to be best, because they, they, they solved some of these fine-tuning problems. They said, like, if, if physics was like this, these fine-tuning problems would end up looking in this particular, uh, in this particular way, uh, and would solve some of these. It would give a reason why a couple of these numbers are exactly where they are and not somewhere else. Um, and a couple of people came along and said, "Well, why should we expect the universe to be like that? What if the universe just is just kind of randomly distributed? And these features just are very drastically different, but are where they are for reasons that we didn't expect." 
and so anyways, they, so there were all sorts of arguments among physicists about fine-tuning and it's called the entropic principle, which uh, 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 is sort of philosophical before, where why is it that these particles, or why these features are exactly where they are? Well, because we're here. And if they weren't there, we wouldn't be here. Um, so there's weird questions of cause and effect there, but, but what I want to get at is, I think my instincts as a physicist are still that I would really, really like that, I, I, would, I would love it if there were a natural philosophical explanation for why each and every one of those fine-tuning parameters is exactly where it is. There's some minimization of some feature that forces it to end up right here and not a percent higher or a percent lower. That would be awesome. I would love that. I don't know if that's the case, and if it's not the case, so be it. But like the physicist could be really, really wants that to be the case. And, 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 and thinks that as a physicist, you should want that to be the case, because if not, you end up stop, you stop asking why it is the way it is. Well, that's just where it is. Okay, let's move on. It's like, no, why is it the way it is? So, I think that said, uh, so, so I, 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 I find the fine-tuning arguments interesting and compelling, because they do force us into these kinds of questions about why is it the universe is just so on a knife edge for biology and humanity uh, eventually to exist. And at, at, the very, at the very least, that is a provocative question and helpful for shaking people out of certain doldrums about, well, the universe is just randomly distributed and just, it just worked out this way. It's like, it need not have worked out. It could have been very, very different. Um, I don't know if I would want to use fine-tuning as, like, this is a, a proof that God exists. I think it's, it's, it's a rhetorical argument that I think is helpful, um, but ultimately the physicist in me kind of hopes fine-tuning is wrong, <laughs> and that, and that the, the God, is, God is so amazingly wonderful that he actually made it so that the universe had to be the way it was to, to, for, for, for us to end up in very natural ways, that he didn't need to just sort of tweak the dials just right. Now, if he hadn't treated the dials, he's gone, so be it. Uh, but the physicist in me would kind of like uh, would kind of like a world that was not fine-tuned. And if we could figure out why these things that seem to be fine-tuned are the way they are. So I think I, I sort of just avoided answering the question. But <laughs> I hope that was a question. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I think uh,